0: Beloved, for those of you tuning in to our first episode of the Unfinished Church Podcast, we want to acknowledge that this conversation with Nadia boltz Weber was recorded in January of 2022. We are releasing the episode in May of 2022, after a devastating weekend in the United States where several innocent people lost their lives and others were injured by hatred and racially motivated gun violence. There is a piece of the interview where we discuss gun violence. Our hearts are heavy, and this weekend's events remind us that our work towards racial reconciliation truly is unfinished. Welcome to the Unfinished Church. I'm Gregory Palmer.
1: I'm Mike McKee.
0: And I'm Latrell Miller-Easterling. The unfinished church is a place for brave conversations to build a world in which racial prejudice has no power. God is not finished with us. Beloved, I am excited about the vulnerability the authenticity and the clarity that Nadia brought to this conversation around anti-racism and about calling the church back to who she is supposed to be for the real work of transformation.
2: I think because it, it models laying bare our imperfection around race, among many other places where as persons and as the institution of the church, where clearly we have uh, not always hit the mark and maybe missed it more than we've ever hit it. And until we allow that to be um, laid bare, the wound can't even approach healing.
1: This conversation is helpful because I think we begin to understand the importance of authenticity. A word that is often misused or used too often we have authenticity embodied in this conversation with Nadia Bose-Weber. And I so appreciate about her honesty, not only about herself, but about the church that we all dearly love.
0: And I think that Nadia invites us to let go of the fear that to engage in this conversation, to recognize where all of us hold some bias, some preconceived notion all of us fall short of the glory of God, that that doesn't mean that we need to hate ourselves, that doesn't mean we need to be afraid to enter into the conversation. From vocabulary, to clothing, to hairstyles, to the nature and content of what is being protested, God's creation is diverse. Today's conversation is about respecting these beautiful human differences, even if we don't prefer them or understand them. Respecting different forms of expression requires an understanding that we may not really know what is going on. As the theologian Aretha Franklin reminds us, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. Our baptismal vows and communal practices of baptism bathes this practice in grace, mystery, and connection across time, all ages, nations, and races. We are thrilled to be joined today by author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber. She writes and speaks about personal failings, recovery, Grace, faith, and whatever else she wants to. Nadia's unique and uncensored approach to living out the gospel and building community is rooted in respecting difference with humility, grace, and forgiveness. It is great to be with you again, Nadia. Welcome to the Unfinished Church.
3: Thank you so much, Bishop. I'm delighted to be joining
0: you guys. Excellent. Let us embark upon this rich conversation. The Gospel of Matthew includes the scripture, don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Yet Christians seem to be judging others quite a bit. I mean, the society that we're living in is becoming more vituperative by the day. And a lot of that vitriol seems to be centered in race. Where have we failed in our spiritual formation?
3: Oh, where have we failed in our spiritual formation?
0: I think that
3: in terms of Christianity, I feel like there really has so seldom been a deep commitment to humility. And sometimes people teach humility, but it's as a way of being able to abuse people easier. So that's not what I'm saying. But it feels like in all sectors of the church, there isn't this sort of spiritual humility, intellectual humility, religious humility to say every single one of us is not really gonna get any of this completely right. Like the scripture says, maybe we shouldn't judge how far everyone else is off the mark continually, when we ourselves are probably off the mark and don't even realize it. So I feel like both in the in the liberal and the conservative church, there's an enormous amount of hubris. And, and so often our psyches have a hard time withstanding any kind of criticism any kind of inclination that we might not be getting something right because when somebody actually has a lot of maturity when they have a sort of solid healthy ego criticism isn't threatening right and so i think that we haven't done a lot in the church to sort of become these really integrated people that can Actually, withstand a little bit of pressure, a little bit of criticism. You know, it's interesting that judge not lest he be judged. I have a friend who was one of the one of these people who their online presence was really one of calling other people out a lot, like okay. piling on. Somebody made an error of some some kind. She was she was the first to to call them out and to get other people on their side and to pile on. And she's in this moment of repentance from that. I'm like, man, you live by the call out. You die by the call out. If that is your brand, if that's going to be your brand, God bless you. But it's a matter of time. You know, like my friend, my friend Jacob Smith is is an Episcopal priest in New York. And he goes, look, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal. And most of us are already on day two everyone needs to relax. And so one of the things I see in our conversations with race and where people get very defensive and they don't want to take in any kind of new information is that most people are so wrecked with insecurity and have such a lack of spiritual maturity that they put all their energy into preserving this idea that they have of themselves that they're right. This is what we do. I think that we are in so much more danger of harming ourselves and other people when we're certain we're good, mm. when we're certain mm. we're right, that when we think we're being virtuous, than we ever do when we're certainly acting out of our vices. And so I think sometimes this need to, like, I have to maintain. A self-understanding that I am good. Now, if somebody's going to be giving me information that says, actually, you know what? As an over-educated, privileged white lady, there's a bunch of stuff you don't understand yet. Well, if my self-understanding is I already know stuff, I'm going to get really defensive. If my self-understanding is solid enough and my psyche and my maturity is solid enough, I'm not threatened by that. I want to know, oh, I wonder, I could have curiosity. What is it? This was hard for me as well. It's hard for a lot of us. I thought I knew stuff about race. And then when I was confronted more and more with things I didn't know, I had to fight through a little resistance to go, what do I want more? Do I want the truth more or do I want to be right? Because so, so seldom are these going to be the same thing.
0: Exactly. Well, it sounds like you're describing the difference between convicted humility, and a facade of humility, or even humility as a weapon. And God knows we weaponize scripture and and the like enough. I'd also like to ask you about the violence that pervades our society. It seems particularly predicated on othering and a righteous indignation that some believe gives them license to actually act out violently. How do we then reframe our discipleship? to recognize that Christ comes as the prince of peace and to bring reconciliation and healing.
3: I do a lot of speaking in um, other countries. And if you're in other, what are called Western developed countries, the ones that we kind of have the most in common with, and you're an American, you will eventually get the questions. I mean, I swear to God, every time I'm over there, after a while, people will be like, look, we got an American we gotta ask her the questions. And the questions they always wanna ask me about, they're like, look, there's so many similarities between our cultures. Can you help us with some things that are that are very difficult to understand in America? They wanna know about you can probably guess it, gun laws, right. mass incarceration, the number of the percentage of our citizens that are incarcerated, and relatedly the death penalty. These right. three things, as they're lived out in the United States of America are madness to other Western developed countries. They cannot understand them. So they're like, Nadia, can you help us? Mm -hmm. And my answer, and this has been for the last 10 years, I've been getting these questions when I travel abroad. My answer is like, you cannot understand these spiritual maladies in our country, unless you're willing to look at white supremacy. You can't understand that it is baffling it is madness. The only way to trace back how in the world are we in a point where we preserve and protect these three things? It always goes back to the the unconfessed original sins of our country. The right. spiritual malady in this country has to do with the fact that we've never done our work. There's never been a truth and reconciliation commission, and right. so on. Some level, that whole thing of we have to protect ourselves. That instinct of like. Somebody's going to come and get us. We, we have the right to protect all our shit, all of that. That is rooted in the fact that we never did Mm -hmm. our work around the enslavement of human beings and around the land theft and genocide of human beings. And we know that we live in a castle that we kind of got through some unseemly and unethical means like on some level we might not admit it but we kind of know and it's that truth underneath there that (laughs) fuels this fact well we better be able to arm ourselves we better be able to kill anyone we find it at all threatening that we think is gonna come and take our stuff and and then we have to be able to incarcerate as many of them as possible and if we want to we need to be able to kill them. So mm-hmm. it, it's all to me, it's all rooted in that. And you know what? I say that as somebody who right now I'm, I'm writing a book about forgiveness and I'm, I have my assistant doing some research for me about stand your ground laws, okay. about the castle doctrine mm-hmm. because my nephew at the end of August had a mental break when he would, he, he's like me, young addict, alcoholic in and out of treatment centers. 23 years old he was in detox again and he had a, a mental break and he thought oh there's demons and i gotta get out he was dissociated and right. he goes to a house in the neighbor he gets out of the detox goes to a house in the neighborhood banging on the door saying it's henry it's your cousin let me in thinking it's a family home mm. he just needs some help he needs some mental health help and he gets inside this mm. house and the man shot and killed him And so I am trying to go, where does this come from? Where does it come from, this idea? Because I went and walked the Camino de Santiago to grieve my nephew. I had to just get out. I was like, I cannot be Nadia Mm Boltzlucker for anyone right now. And I went and I walked the Camino and I told that story of how Henry died to maybe five or six people who were from other countries. And they're all like, well, how long will this man be in prison? I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, that's legal here. And sister, they were horrified, horrified at the idea. Someone right. gets into your house, you can kill them point mm-hmm. and blank and no questions asked, hardly. And I and so I'm trying to go back and go where does it come from? What is the sickness that causes a situation? And and while I'm looking at at that. I also have compassion for how terrifying it would be for somebody who is not in their right mind to get into your house. And then the reason that I think that we have to change our gun laws, this is where I want to be clear. It's not because I'm nonviolent. It's because I am violent. I should not have access to a handgun. You know why? If someone got into my house, I think I would kill them. Mm -hmm. We have created a situation with these guns in our country where in a split second we think they might have a gun and so we better kill them first. And so all of this feeling of being threatened all the time that we have creates so much death and creates so much violence. And Mm -hmm. I wonder what would happen in this country if we actually sat down as a people and did our work and just told some truths, man just told some truths about stuff. We've never done
0: that. Well, first, let me say that I am so sorry for the loss of your nephew and that you and your family are having to experience that grief. I, I simply can't imagine. The chapel, your online community, when we talk about sitting down, you talk about just doing that work. You ask hosts and all members to respect and keep to nine commandments. Their stated purpose is to keep everyone in right relationship with each other. Honoring difference is one of those commitments. Why was that important enough to you to make it one of the nine? And what have you learned about creating environments where where this is the foundational thread of your relationship?
3: Well, the reason is because people behave poorly towards each other online because they can. We have no covenant with each other. I actually have met Monica Lewinsky a couple times. And she said to me, because I asked her, I said, how do people treat you? She goes, honestly, Nadia, I could count on one hand the number of times that somebody's been awful to me in person. Mm. Every day of my life, people have been awful to me online since I was 21. Why? Because we have no covenant for how to treat each other. And there's that anonymity. And so the importance to me was going, look, also when we have daily prayer, we say, In the chapel, you're going to hear some theological language, and maybe there'll be a type of prayer that you're not comfortable with. You'll be okay. We're all going to take turns being uncomfortable. It's really important to us. So I think that we can create these little bubbles of comfort in our lives where we need to make sure there's no ideas we're not comfortable with. There aren't people around we're not comfortable with. We can just create these little bubbles, and we're pruning down the ability for us to grow as spiritual beings when when we do that is only by encountering difference that we ever can actually know who we are. Mm. It's the only way. And so I think that, and the funny thing is, as I'm answering this, I'm realizing, I'm answering this question on both sides ideologically. Uh I think that what I see in liberal circles online too, is a complete lack of being willing to look at subtlety, of being able to actually listen to any kind of critical thinking. There's just so much reactivity without any kind of like listening. And people are terrified of any heterodox ideas, you know?
2: Yeah. I wonder if I could uh, just follow up on a bit of what how you've responded to Bishop Easterling's question, she initially talked about, and you responded to the question about, you know, how is uh, the way we've kind of gotten sideways about difference connected deeply to not being well-formed spiritually? And then the Lewinsky illustration of, in person, nobody's ever really been that harsh or unkind to me—I think I'm paraphrasing—but online. What's the connection between this spiritual malformation, my words, and virtual courage that people don't seem to have when they're in physical proximity?
3: I'm not sure, but I can say from my own experience that if I'm going to be honest, the majority of my spiritual formation happened in the basement of churches and not the (laughs) sanctuaries of churches. You know, I've gone to AA meetings and church basements for 30 years, and people they are able to speak honestly, honestly about their lives and connect to God and to one another. And I see it a lot more often in a church basement than I do in a church sanctuary. And I think one of the reasons is because the starting point of 12-step work is not seeking righteousness, actually. It's not becoming better disciples. It's not Progressive sanctification. The starting point is failure. The starting point is humility. The starting point is to go. I admit I'm an alcoholic and I actually, on my own will and power, am hopeless. And I have to rely on a power greater than myself. I have to admit I can't do this by myself. I have to rely on God. I have to be really honest about my failings. I have to clean up my side of the street. I have to try to be of service to others. And to me i've seen that kind of formation in people through that process in a way that i think is the
0: church could really take note of mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. And and also what I hear you describing, Nadia, is a vulnerability that mm. unfortunately it seems like what, what is presently now pervasive in too many Christian communities is not about a vulnerability. Because what you just described in that 12-step program really should be our understanding of our baptism. We don't need baptism because we're perfect. We need baptism because we are not perfect. Perfect. And, and so, again, why have we lost this notion of vulnerability and the beauty and the sacredness that comes through that vulnerability?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the world breaks your heart. You know, I mean, so many of us have 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 experienced a world that is that is harsh and has broken our heart and and where we have been hurt. And so it is, as Brene Brown says, it does take some bravery. But as it pertains to conversations around race, I think on one end, I see a lack of humility in people who are trying to preserve an idea that they're already good. And so Mm -hmm. why are you trying to tell me I'm racist? I have a Black grandchild. I can't (laughs) be racist. You know, There's that kind of nonsense, trying to preserve that sense of self. And then on the other end, You have people who spend so much time calling out other people as a way of deflecting what might be going on for them. Or they'll do a lot of perform, like once they sort of learn some of this stuff, we end up doing some performative stuff so that people can see we're good we, we're right. posting the right stuff yes. online we're trying to <laughs> yes. co-opt our black friends into like saying we're the good white people i mean yes. th- do you know what i mean there's just so yes. much nonsense and they're both both of these things i think when we are doing them are really rooted in a deep insecurity and so i think this is why the conversations around anti-racism that I feel the most drawn to are Mm -hmm. ones where the foundational principle is your belovedness. All of this, no matter who it is, and that we can go back to that instead of the foundational thing about you is that you have white supremacy that you haven't dealt with. That's not going to be the foundational part of you. It really Mm -hmm. is a belovedness. And when that the conversation can go back to that, we can actually have grace for each other as we're facing these challenges. It's a it's a thing I see absent in these conversations a lot. Because it's so important, we think it's a betrayal of the cause to show grace to anyone. I think it's actually a place that people can actually land. If they know that there's some grace to it, they're more apt to keep walking that path.
1: Nadia, I want to follow up on something you said, and that was... That the world breaks your heart. I'm of the opinion that the church has broken too many hearts as well. And so as you talk about humility and being open to anything, how do we create a church, a body of believers, a beloved community that really uh, respects people and is so very open to people bringing their pain or their stuff or whatever that I want to be a part of a community like this. What would you say to the church?
3: The most important thing is to start with as much honesty as you can, because unless we do that, we're just going to be what I call redecorating the phone booth. You know, it's like in the sense of you can go, we don't have phone booths everywhere like we used to, and then you can then think, oh, well, that means that nobody cares about communicating with other people on phones anymore. Of course we don't know that's true. You can say, people aren't going to church as much. Oh, so they aren't as interested in spiritual formation and prayer. It's not true. And so the church ends up saying, hey, let's redecorate the phone booth rather than being honest enough. And one of the things I feel like I'd love for us to do more is to be as honest as we can about what is our deepest value, not what does our website say our values are, but Mm -hmm. based in what we do, based in how we spend money, based in what we talk about the most, what are our deepest values? And one of the examples I like to give is like, look, if everybody in the congregation hates the fake flowers that are on the altar, (laughs) but nobody will ever say anything, you have to do the work of, well, why would that be? Oh, maybe it's because Agnes puts them there. And in this super codependent way, Agnes overfunctions at church and does a lot of the work nobody else wants to sign up for. And mm-hmm. on and so what that means is our highest value is keeping Agnes happy at all costs. And that's why we will suffer through ugly paraments or fake flowers because we need to keep agnes happy so that we aren't the ones who have to do the bookkeeping or do whatever she's doing so to do really honest work about what do the, our practices say about our values not what does our website say about our values mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because so often churches get uh, are confused about the difference between being friendly and being welcoming And so often we have these very friendly churches that cannot see all the ways that they're not welcoming. God bless them. And so um, they're like, we were so friendly when people visited. Why aren't they coming back? Well, there's a million ways uh, like a worship service can be unwelcoming and you don't see it because you've been in it and you're so familiar with it for so long. So even inviting people who aren't even churchgoers to come and and say as honestly as they can, what did they not understand? What felt uncomfortable to them? What did everyone around them seem to understand and they didn't? I mean, the first time I went to a Lutheran service, they gave me like a red hymnal and then a green hymnal. And then they gave me a worship book, or a little folder thing that, that, that then had code in it. Like it said, like Kyrie LBW42. I don't know what the hell any of this means. And everybody around me did. And then there's an insert that has the readings and that's different. I mean, it was impossible to break the code and they were so friendly and I felt the whole time like I didn't belong.
0: Well, Nadia, we are asking all of our guests two questions. And so if you would, I'd like to ask you those questions now. How do you talk with people about racial justice who don't think, act, or look like you?
3: I don't think I do. (laughs) I don't think I do do that. (laughs) If, That's I'm, honest. if I'm honest, I'm trying to think, when have I done that? I, I can say that I try to tell my own story as much as I can. I try to talk about my own struggles and at different points when I learn things and things that are hard. And I try to keep it in that because I'm not an expert in this. People, you know, It's not like I'm going to do a keynote on this stuff. To me, it's personal. It has to do with the relationships that I've that I've had over the last ten years, and that in um, the ways that those have changed me, it has to do with the fact that when something happens in the news cycle, and I react to it differently right. than my friend Teresa at, mm. reacts to it, I have to ask mm. myself, "Oh, why? Mm. Why is that?" I have to, you know. So it's it is a constant work like that of seeing things. And hopefully once you see them, you can't unsee them. But talking about like being a beginner with this stuff and and being willing to talk about that. That's all I really have to offer because I'm not like an expert in any
0: way. Well, I think you are offering far more than you were giving yourself credit for. The next question I would ask you is how do you care for your soul? In the midst of anti-racism work, or any work that is trying to bring about transformation and change,
3: you know, I had I wrote I publish essays every week or so on my, on my uh, it's called the Corners it's my Substack and mm-hmm. the one that I published that got the most that half a million people read it, it had the most reads of anything I wrote was around bandwidth because I don't know that our psyches were developed to be able to hold, respond to and care about every form of human suffering and injustice and natural disaster and violence that happens to every person throughout the whole planet every minute of the day.
0: Right, right.
3: We, our psyches were developed to, to be able to hold and res- respond to and care about the injustice and the violence and the stuff that happens in our village. Mm. And so, so many of us are experiencing this, like the fact that we have this older wiring, but we have this modern stimulus of things clamoring for our attention. And it's hard. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to do something about immigration. I have to do some anti-racism work. And what about the environment? And, you know, and now there's this other thing asking. And, And to go, you know, my friend Suzanne taught me these discernment questions of like, What's mine to do right and what's not mine to do? What's mine to say and what's not mine to say? What's mine to care about, which is harder, and what's not mine to care about? That's not to say it's not worthy to be cared about by someone, but I think understanding our capacity and what is ours to do and mm-hmm. to bless the fact that other things will be cared about and done by other people. So it's not like putting our heads in the sand. It's actually being effective because we can have that discernment. What's mine to do? right? And then to bless and support others and what's theirs to do. And I think having that clarity really helps mm-hmm. the overwhelm.
0: Amen. Well, Nadia, thank you for being you, first of all, and for creating bold spaces of belonging for saints and sinners. And now I would ask my brother bishops, what would you highlight from today's conversation? What's going to continue to resonate with you?
2: I'll be haunted by uh, this question, created by something that uh, Nadia said, the world breaks your heart. And then Bishop McKee questioned, asserted that Sometimes the church breaks our heart. And um, just that kind of dichotomy, the question that's haunting me, and I would say in a good way, to do good work, I hope, about it is, has the church become too conformed to this world? Sort of a Romans 12 piece. Are we cut so much after the pattern of the world? And as I've said from time to time, did we particularly in American Protestantism, did we campaign for the job of becoming the chaplain to the white middle class and we got the job?
3: One of the things that that breaks my heart is going is the way the church has just seems to have bought into a set of values and judges itself according to those values and feels like it's always coming up lacking. And maybe those weren't the standards Mm -hmm. we were supposed Mm -hmm. to be meeting to begin with.
1: One of the things that resonates with me is something that is deep inside anyway, and that is about our work to do. I cannot change the world. I think sometimes many clergy and lay people as well, I would say do overreach, and that they think I can take on this prophetic stance for the whole world when there's so many injustices or challenges in local communities that really need our attention and our work. And uh, I'm just reminded of that by this conversation today. I wanna thank you, Nadia, for uh, giving that to us today again as a reminder to me
3: That was my problem with this thing my my denomination was so in love with years ago called, and forgive me if you guys like it, but uh, natural church development. It was this (laughs) process by which people in your parish would would rank how your church is doing in these 10 categories. Mm -hmm. And then whatever you suck at that's been what you're supposed to really focus on you know and the consultant would show you a a water barrel with the wooden slats and one is lower than the rest and your barrel can only hold as much water as the lowest slat and everyone's convicted going yeah let's do this and I'm like hold on like if my church is excellent at a few things but not at others I bet the church down the block is excellent at those. Who says mm-hmm. we have to be good at all the things? Come on.
0: Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Amen. Well, you, you certainly make me think about the, the quote, when the gospel has become bad news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted and the imprisoned, and good news to the proud, self-righteous, and privileged. Instead, it is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so Nadia, again, just want to thank you for being with us today, for sharing your heart, for calling us all into a covenant of vulnerability, and for just bringing so much resonance to the Unfinished Church podcast. Beloved, please tune in next time when we connect with Ebu Patel about examining our perceptions.
1: Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Connect with us and find related resources on our website, theunfinishedchurch.org. The Unfinished Church, conversations that transform.